What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. My advice to anybody would be, don't just look at something and go, I'm going to do that because it's actually got very little value necessarily, unless you are clear as to what what it will add to you. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to The Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a performance coach, content creator and founder of The Coaches Network. And today's episode is going to be part of our how-to series, where we discuss a range of topics and with the help of our guests, break down some actionable how-to steps to help you reach your full potential. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to The Coaches Network. My name is Coach Yas and today I've got a very special guest with me today as part of our latest edition of the how-to series. Today, I've got Head of Coaching at Sport England, Stuart Armstrong. Good morning, Stuart. How are you, mate? Morning. I'm, I'm good. It's a bright, sunny morning, and I'm delighted to be chatting to you about all things coaching. Brilliant. Stuart, just for those uh, listeners that maybe are not too familiar with yourself um, and the work that you do, would you mind just going into a bit of detail around that, please? Uh, well, day job-wise, um, my my role at Sport England, um, I basically look, af- look after all, all things related to um, kind of people and workforce in, in sport and physical activity. And that means across all, all sports, um, we, you know, we currently um, uh, are providing funding to support participation activity and talent development in about 45 different sports but we're also working across a whole range of different domains of physical activity as well so you know so gyms exercise and fitness we're working in the health sector within education all the all the areas in where where people have a kind of touch point with with physical activity and my role is to I guess support and guide how how we support those people who are working within within the sport and physical activity sector, whether it's as a professional or as a volunteer. Um, and in particular, my particular interest is in coaching um, and uh, and supporting the development of coaches so that coaches are being given far more guidance, support, advice to be able to help them do a better job, I suppose. Brilliant. And, you know, just to kind of, you know, build on that, then, you know, within the, the work that you do specifically, are you are you based in one particular sport? Do you specialise in a particular sport, or do you, do you just support coaches across the different, uh, I guess, environments? Uh, so, to in terms of work wise, um, we're supporting across all the different sports. I mean, my role is largely a kind of policy role and and, uh, right. and, a, and a leadership role. So, what I'm doing is I'm working with um, or working to guide and support the governing bodies to sort of transform the way that they support coaches. You know, either supporting or changing the way they or transforming the way they do coach education to move it into a more modern and digital world, 
or um, and and sorry, also um, making sure that coaches have got much more support on the ground when they're working. Um, at the moment, you know, tends to be that they'll do a course and then sort of left to their own devices and we feel like it's you know it's not it's a pretty hard job isn't it as you know so actually it would be much better if more coaches could have access to someone who can give them a bit of support a bit of guidance a bit of advice either there with them by the side or someone they can just turn to and have a conversation like this and uh, work through some of their challenges and problems so that you know it's kind of more more working through the organizations in that way and we range we work with a range of different organizations you know working closely with for example you know organizations involved in football you know which are obviously in working at a significant scale with you know tens of thousands of coaches annually you know right down to relatively small organizations albeit with you know quite a big job to do working you know in different sports you know so working with um you know kind of think orienteering and, and these sorts of activities as well you know it's quite a different scale of operation but but still trying to help them to support their workforce better and it's just um it's just going to take a slightly away from your role now you've also got your own podcast uh, the talent equation would you mind just showing a bit about that regard uh, or that with the listeners regarding your podcast yeah the podcast and the podcast and the blog and talent equation was originally set up um i originally set it up actually as a reflective blog because i was you know actively involved in my own coaching journey and i uh you know was progressing and you know working through the system i'm a i'm a field hockey coach as well as a cricket coach and i'm also um also coaching golf and a little bit in rugby but predominantly in hockey and i was working through the pathways and and one of the things i knew having been worked in the industry for quite a bit was you know being able to um document your reflections as you go through your learning was important so the blog was actually originally started as a means by which for me to sort of reflect on the things i'm learning and the things i'm experiencing and then I started to sort of maybe, you know, started to write and publish more things that I was either seeing or, you know, sharing things. And people started to get interested and started to read it. I mean, this was about 15 years ago. Um, and I've always loved podcasts as well. And I always had an aspiration to do a podcast. And I started the podcast about four or five years ago now. Um, and really, the real aim of the podcast was, you know, when, when I started the podcast, there wasn't that much for coaches uh, in the podcasting world. There was a few people doing some really interesting things, but um, not a lot. And um, I mean, now it's, you know, there's loads, which is which is great. Um, and I guess it was just me making my contribution. Uh, also, um, just to be, you know, totally frank about it, you know, I'm just fascinated about talking to people about coaching and, and learning from them and hearing their experiences. And so, um, it was also another another way for me to be able to have conversations with others that I hoped would be valuable to other people. Um, it was also really helpful to me in terms of progressing my own learning and development. Mm. And also, um, you know, the main aim as well was there was uh, a whole area of of coaching that I don't think was getting enough um, visibility in in either the sort of popular domain or certainly within some of the academic literature and I, and I was really I was really interested in it as a personal interest as well so I really wanted to sort of expose others to some of the learnings that I'd had and, and allow them to sort of experience some of that and then also you know start to have some further, further more in-depth discussions and actually some of the conversations I've had and the relationships I've built through the podcast has been a really fantastic experience. Mm. You know, and, and I think certainly what you touched on there, but, but you know, just exchanging that information with us and, and, you know, just really, it's almost putting all the information out there and picking out what what's relevant to you in that respect. You know, I just want to, before we kind of, you know, go deeper into today's topic, I just want to maybe 
get a bit more understanding about who Stuart Armstrong is, you know, what your passion is within the coaching realm, obviously. Um, where did that coaching journey start for you? Um, I, um, I, I I think it's easy to say this retrospectively, but I think I probably was, I'm not going to say I was born to be a coach, but I do think either my early experiences or just the way I'm kind of built lends me to coaching or roles like coaching, you know, I probably could have just as easily been a teacher, I suppose. And I very nearly did become a teacher. Mm. Um, in the sense that I'm pretty naturally curious. I like to know how things work. Um, you know, I spent quite a lot of my childhood breaking stuff in an, in an attempt to find out how it worked. Uh, not too good at putting it back together by by my own admission. Um, but also, I was born with a disability, so I was born with a condition called talipes, which is commonly known as club foot. And it basically had an operation when I was a baby and they corrected it, but it did leave me with some physical limitations. And I think that makes a difference, has made a difference as well, because when I started to play sport, you know, as an able-bodied individual, you know, I never considered that I really had a great deal of physical limitation beyond just being slower and less athletic than others. But it then meant when I started playing particularly field hockey, which does require quite an amount of athleticism, there was quite, I had to do quite a lot of adaptation. So my game was all about being tactically aware, um, you know, having a lot of awareness of what was around me so that I could make good decisions, working with my teammates. And, you know, I became kind of a bit of a playmaker, I suppose, because I was never necessarily going to have the athleticism to just eliminate loads of players like others found it more easily easy to do. But what I could do is I could take the take the skills of others and I could enhance them by putting them into positions that would enable them to make the most of their skills. And I realized that pretty quickly. And of course, when you start thinking like that in the game, naturally you start directing traffic around you as well. And then that lends you to become increasingly curious about the sort of tactic, tactical aspects and also how you can motivate others. So again, you know, immediately I started to take on leadership roles and captaincies and things like that, which naturally probably then begins to lead you towards the sort of coaching realm. And I started coaching when I was in university, just took on one of the other teams and and started to work and support them. Um, and I sort of haven't really looked back since. Um, I, uh, and I've always, I've always been a massive believer in the power of coaching. Um, I think it's really under, under, um, uh, underutilized, underrecognized actually um, uh, in, in places. It's almost like people who are in coaching roles are almost like the hidden in plain sight. People see them and they see that they're doing something, but they have no idea how, what it takes and the level of commitment and dedication and the energy and the skill that it takes and you know people just think it's basically standing in front of people and telling them what to do and we all know that it's way way more than that um and actually the the lack of recognition is a major passion of mine actually but anyway so getting into coaching was you know i just saw working with coaches was a way to engage people in physical activity my first ever job was working as a sports development officer in a local authority in the place where i live now and part of my job was to sort of encourage kids to get into different sports and i was working in athletics and, and, and hockey and I went in and did some lunchtime clubs, right? And we, we, you know, we had a bit of fun, a small space, but I did some lunchtime clubs. And the next thing, we had 100 kids and playing hockey. And the next thing, the local hockey club had a junior section that didn't have one before. And it really just because we provided a bit of exposure and we had some fun and we got them to learn a little bit about a game that they would otherwise never have experienced. And then that's what sort of snowballed things. And many of those kids, I, 
are members of the club now and I you know and I I've started their kind of journey and all that sort of stuff so I believe that coaching is a really big and powerful role to play not not just around helping people perform and improving their skills and all those sorts of things but a really important role to play in society engaging people in physical activity and tackling what is becoming an inactivity epidemic. I mean, we've got a pandemic at the moment, but the there's also a real danger that we have an inactivity epidemic. And I believe that coaches have got a really important role to play in helping people maintain an activity habit. And so I guess that's that's in a nutshell where my journey's been really, which has been from starting out and then now working to support coaches and coach development in my day job. And I do feel very fortunate to be able to do that. You know, I just want to take you, you know, right back to the start of that. You know, you touched there on, you know, you're having some, you know, personal challenges of your of your own, um, which I guess ignited some of that insight or interest into coaching or looking at things from a different perspective. And you talked there about, you know, being more tactically aware. Now, for myself, you know, one of my big things is uh, when I'm working with players in particular, is it's much more about why are they doing what they're doing and getting them to be more conscious and aware of that. In those early stages for you, was there any particular things that maybe the coach was doing with your or the coaches that you'd come across in those early stages of your journey um, that helped you start to think about those things or was it just something that you felt that was just innate within you from that point on, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I guess there were probably some moments that people, where people recognised things in me. Uh, I remember I... Um, I hadn't been playing. I only started playing hockey quite late. I was about 14 when I started playing because we won a gold medal in 88. Um, I was on the edge of the bed at 5.30 in the morning watching uh, Imran Shawani score, uh, score the, the the goal that won us a gold, the, the, our only ever sort of men's hockey gold medal. We've had a female hockey gold medal since um, in the Olympics. And it just it was about four or five of us said, we want to play this game. Let's, where, where can we start? And so I started quite late, but I managed to sort of progress quite quickly and I got selected or got was part of a kind of training squad for like what would be the equivalent. I grew up in North Wales, so I was, got into, went into the North Wales sort of setup, if you like. And the coach there was a really great guy. Um, Steve Edwards, his name was. And, um, and he asked me to captain the side. And I was not the best player by a million miles. I mean, I could tell, you know, you know, you know, when you're there and you look around and you go, whoa, these boys are good, you know? Um, and he said, no, I want you to be the captain. And I was like, well, hang on, you've got him and him and him and he's better. And he goes, no, but you're a captain. And I suppose that was a kind of bit of a moment for me. It stayed with me for a long time. You know, that there's something, being a captain is something other than just being the best player. And he spotted some other attributes in me not quite sure how or where maybe I was just a bit lippy I don't know but but he he saw he saw that in me and I guess that was one of the things that sort of started me or kind of gave me a bit of a sense that you know I had a role to play beyond what I could do on the field just purely and simply with with the stick and a ball um, and then as I progressed further you know I found myself really attracted by you know, basically I've always been really attracted by human to human interaction I wanted to do sports psychology as part of my degree but they said, well, if you can't do statistics and maths, you, this is no good for you. So I just walked straight out because it was no good for me, you know, but I was really interested in like social sciences and sports sociology and sports ethics and the philosophy of sports and those sorts of dimensions, which has actually led, led me into a career in sports development. But um, but fundamentally, you know, those sorts of areas as well, were all about kind of understanding human to human interaction. And I'm just 
really, really fascinated about human to human interaction and, and the power of it. And I suppose that's that's the other thing that probably took me into that into that uh, journey. Mm. But, you know, one of the massive things that, you know, you talk about within your within your personal, you know, your your work in terms of your talent equation stuff, you know, is, is around this aspect of the ecological approach. Yeah. Um, would you mind just, you know, just giving us a bit of insight around, from your perspective, what that looks like and what what that means? So the ecological approach is is founded on a branch of psychology, which is known as ecological psychology. There are various other strands as well, but I won't go into, into all of that. But broadly speaking, the uh, ecological psychology is based on the principle of um, uh, the interaction between an individual, the environment, and then whatever it is they're trying to do within that space. Um, and um, in its simplest form, I'm obviously oversimplifying a little bit, but it's it's basically fundamentally the the recognition that human beings adapt to their environment. And, um, you know, that's kind of the way we've evolved over millennia, you know, over hundreds of thousands of years, you know, we, we've basically, our, our environment has changed and we've been forced to adapt in, in, in an effort to survive and thrive. Um, and so the, uh, the branch of ecological psychology looks at how, well, or looks at the ways in which the, uh, you know, an individual's interactions with the environment then influence things like behavior. And um, so from that perspective, they, the, the understanding within ecological psychology is you never separate the environment uh, you know you never separate if you can help it the task from the environment so historically or traditionally quite a lot of coaching was purely or predominantly based on uh, the acquisition of technique and it's quite often done in isolation of the environment so you know you would do a standard sort of drill wouldn't you where you're learning to move in a certain way and then the then the assumption is you then take that into context well the ecological approach works in a different way so the ecological approach starts with the environment that you're in and then uh, and then the idea is then the environment is going to ask some questions of the athletes in order for them to adapt to that environment and then by changing the environment you bring about adaptations in the athletes and um, and and then if you're skillful in the way that you manipulate the environment or you change the task, if you like, then an individ then the individuals have to adapt in certain ways, which then mean that their their technical capability emerges as a result of their response to the environment. So, for example, if I was to learn to move the ball in a certain way without anybody else there, I would be learning to move the ball in a certain way without anybody else there. I then, if I'm confronted with somebody else, depending on what they do, depends on what I do. But I've learned to do it <clears throat> without anybody else there. So I might run up and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I might run up and try and do the move that I've learned. But if the other person acts in a certain way, that move's not going to work anymore. So the ecological approach is basically working from environment back to the in, to the individual rather than individual towards the environment. And it's just a slightly different way of perceiving the way in which we might design learning experiences for, for young people. Definitely. You know, just touching on there, you know, it's, it's largely linked to almost like an implicit way of learning. And would you say there's any uh, commonly associated or 
appropriate ways in which the coach should maybe deliver the session in terms of the style of delivery uh, and the interventions, uh, you know, to maybe support any ecological. <laughs> yeah, um, that's quite hard. That's quite hard. The methodological side is a hard thing to explain uh, in a in in a succinct way. But just to be um, to give you some sort of broad parameters, depending on uh, how much depth you want to get into, and by all means, probe me more if you want to. Um, one of the methodologies, if you like, that has sort of, I guess, nested itself is nested within the ecological approach. There's a few. So there's like methodology like game sense or teaching games for understanding. And those were approaches that I experimented with in my early coaching journey for quite some time with some interesting um, experiences. But um but so, that you, so you've got things like game sense teaching games for understanding um game-based approaches games-led approaches but the, the model that i suppose is i guess fits against some of them as well is what they call the constraints-led approach so yeah. that is where you are you're going to look at what are the constraints that you can use that will help an athlete or group of athletes to tune into um a particular way of you know kind of way of acting i suppose or or begin to experience the environment in a certain way and and very simply again you know i'm, I'm gonna you know i'm trying to keep things simple because i do believe actually it's useful to keep things simple but you've basically got four types of constraint you can either constrain space in a way in a range of different ways you know smaller bigger different shapes etc cetera, etc cetera. um you can constrain uh, the task so you can put rules and different uh, you can either stop people doing certain things or you can encourage them to do other things by creating rules and tasks within an, within a within a, any form of um, engagement and practice um, you can uh, you can use different types of equipment and manipulate the equipment in different ways and you have to adapt to different so if you use a different type of ball a uh, different size of ball different ball with different rebound properties um then that all requires certain adaptations and then the other one is the people and that's a combination of how many there are uh what they can do where they can go um all those sorts of things you know you use for example things like you know underloads or overloads in a team game or you know you can constrain what others can do or not do if you're playing against an opponent and all those sorts of things and there are four branches of constraint that you can use and by manipulating those constraints you then you are changing the dimensions of the activity and by changing the dimensions of the activity you're asking questions of the athletes as to how they can respond to that yeah you know and i think just within that then you know this you know what kind of comes to mind is a is a, is a saying that some people use in this this idea around let the game be the teacher and almost the environment uh in some way dictates that learning for the for the athletes within it what are your thoughts on that Bruce? um well i think it can be on some levels i i understand what it's trying to say but i don't think it's quite right so I get your point about you, you made you made reference earlier to implicit learning, you know, so it's this idea that learning is taking place because the human is interacting with the environment. It might not be obvious. It might not be might, might not be visible, but it is taking place because unless that individual is entirely unaware of everything going on around them, something's happening at what speed it happens and everything else is is a different matter. But there is something happening. Um, and so 
um, within that idea of implicit learning is this idea that you know you create a game and the, there is learning happening from the game now the problem with the, the phrase is people then when you say the game is the teacher think that playing the game is all you need and that's not at all what um, those of us who are kind of aligned to a more ecological conception of how coach coaching should take or could take place um, uh, wouldn't ever say that it's not just play a game because you could play a game and like there's a whole range of movement possibilities that you would never develop because it never occurred to you to so of course you do need more than just the game so um, what you want is for um, I mean it's, it's not as it's not as snappy a phrase, but you know, a more accurate reflection would be something along the lines of the practice environment is the teacher. But it's not yeah. it's not as it's not as snappy, is it? So what I'm what what you would what you what I would say is the game can be the teacher. Um but it, it definitely needs a lot more intention than that. And you that's one thing I would say about working this way. You have to be very, very clear on what your intention is and your practice design, the, the way you design the environment does have to be really quite well thought through if you want to bring about some of these adaptations. It's not, you, you won't just see it happen automatically. You will see some things happen, don't get me wrong, but it won't happen automatically. So that's definitely something that, probably does need to be um, uh, clarified, I'd say. And just on that, you know, to kind of delve deeper around the practice design elements now, there's a lot of coaches out there and I'm sure, you know, I've certainly been there in the past in my journey and I'm, you know, I'm, I won't be surprised if you have too where early on or in my early, in early years anyway, you almost pick ideas from different coaches and uh, you still continue to do that, but obviously you start to dissect them in different ways and, you almost maybe try and use a session that you've seen or a practice that you've seen someone else deliver and it doesn't quite work out for you and you're you know you're left in a conundrum of as to, as to why it didn't work out and whatnot what would you know just to kind of delve deeper into that and dissect the practice design element what would you say are some of the key considerations that pit coaches should be making when looking at the design of the practice obviously you touched there on you know uh, the different ways in which you maybe constrain practices if that's if that's the path you want to take with it um but in terms of considerations to make when actually designing practice, what 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 would you say those are? So, um, I, I I think you're right. You know, a lot of people probably when they start out they beg, borrow, steal. <laughs> um, uh, I think uh, Pep Guardiola describes himself as a as a coaching thief, doesn't he? Because he just takes ideas from everybody, and I think all of us do that. We learn from each other. We learn from what we see around us. But I think there's a better way of doing that. And, and, I, and I do think we're all influenced by each other, you know, um, and I think it's great, you know, and, it, and I genuinely hope that more of that can happen. And largely my podcast exists to do that. You know, it's to share ideas with other people. And I hope somebody comes away with a practical idea from this conversation as well as any conversations I have on my show. Um, but the, the thing about it is, is that I think often when people take a exercise that they might see so they go on youtube and they see something and then they try and replicate it and it doesn't work and they don't know why and it's because they haven't asked themselves a fundamental question which is why is that practice useful what what are they trying to do so i would i would i would my advice to anybody would be don't just look at something and go i'm going to do that 
because it's actually got very little value necessarily unless you are clear as to what what it will add to you so i rarely now will take a practice and just go if i've seen a practice somewhere on social or anywhere just take it and and just run with it i'll take it because there's something in it that is relevant to what i'm trying to achieve but it always has to be relevant to what you're trying to achieve and what your intention is you know and 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 i tend when i talk about intention i always think about intention from the perspective of what is the game problem that we're going to explore so the game presents problems and actually generally speaking they're pretty simple uh, in most activities whether it's a game or a sport or whatever it might or a, an activity or whatever it might be and in my world in hockey it's quite similar to things like football and basketball and other invasion games you know we're, we're trying to get closer to the goal so that we can try and get it in and there's a number of ways we might do that we'd either pass it or run with it um, and we're going to try and utilize some space we're going to you know use space to get there because what the defense are going to do is the opposite of that they're going to try and limit the space they're going to try and take the ball away from us they're going to try and keep us away from their goal or as far away as possible from their goal and they're going to use a load of collective and individual actions to do so so they're the problems that you're going to have to solve right so i always design backwards from that so i'm thinking right what's the problem we're going to solve right the problem we're going to solve is how do we get closer to their goal by carrying the ball okay so that's the explore exploration area today so we're going to work on that. Great. Right. So what aspects of that are we going to work on? Well, we're going to work on carrying the ball in a particular area of the field in order to be able to get the ball to this area. Fine. Great. So now I'm looking for a practice that's going to support that activity as opposed to going, oh, that practice looks fun. I'm going to do that because that's not got the same level of intention attached to it. So I would always say, if anybody is taking a practice form of any kind, think about it from intention. And then what you should always do as well is be prepared to modify that practice. Either you've seen something and you think, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it slightly differently because my intention is this. Or you take the idea and you work with it, and then you realize quite quickly, actually, this would be better if. Or this would be better if I did that. I very rarely, even if I'm designing my own practice or I'm taking a practice that I've seen some, from somewhere else, will just have that practice as it is. I'm nearly always layering or adding something into it to strengthen the connection with the activity that we're trying to we're trying to do. Definitely. And, you know, just, you're kind of just, as you're speaking, you know, what stands out to me is, you know, in one of my roles, um, so I deliver some coach education stuff for the FA with, with level ones and level twos and stuff like that. And quite often, what I often see is coaches having conversations and asking, right, or suggesting they're just going to take the practices that they've seen and just work with them. But the question I always ask me, well, how is that practice going to benefit your environment? Mm. And it's looking at, you know, one of the things I always say to them is that work backwards, similar to what you're saying around the intention, work backwards. What do you want to see in an ideal world if, if the practice was, you know, or if, if your team was working in a certain way on the pitch or your, your individual that you're working with was doing something specific, what would that look yeah. like? And then start to identify something. Again, similar to what some of the questions you've asked, what area of the field is that going to take place in? You know, how many players are going to be involved in that phase of, or, or that pattern of uh, play or that act? that action being taken place and then that starts for me to kind of formulate right what the practice should look like so even if you don't have a framework to work from in the sense of i've seen this practice and i want to make some some adaptations to this to allow it to work for my players you can actually start from a blank slate just by identifying some of these things and it's so for instance you know if you're working on a on, on a five-yard pass okay we're working on a five-yard pass but whereabouts in the pitch do we i'll, I'll be envisioning this 
pass taking place? Is it in the defensive third, the midfield third, the final third? Is it a pass that's going from left to right or from front to back? And all these little variables that you can kind of look at. And, you know, I think just by asking those questions, you start to help you design your own practice for you. Um, but something that you obviously you touched on there as well is that aspect of getting the players or rather the coach understanding that there's possibly different layers to this. Now, you know, quite a common thing that I come across as well is maybe a coach setting up a, a session or uh, setting up the whole session with a series of practices and maybe allocating certain time to each of those practices. Um, and then almost sticking to sticking to that so regimentally where if they've d- d- allocated 10 minutes to this practice and the players aren't quite ready or the players do it too, or the players are maybe under or, sorry, or performing at a rate higher than expected, they're still going to stick with their 10 minutes. You mind just talking to a little, you know, a little bit to how important it is that we work at the pace of the athlete rather than at the pace of the coach. If that yeah. Makes and, sense. and actually you, you make a good point that that's worth me just uh, like, I guess, taking a step back into what you were talking about previously. Okay which was um, that's something as well that I think people often don't quite connect with. If they're looking around for an idea or from ins- some inspiration and they see a practice and very often they you know, might see a practice that they see a Premier League side do or something along those lines mm-hmm. and then they try and apply it with under nines <laughs> and that's not going to work. <laughs> Um, and it's certainly not going to work at the same speed. And then often what I've often seen as well is I see quite a lot of coaches, because I'm like you, I do quite a lot of coach development. I'm working with coaches on the ground and they'll kind of abandon it. It's not working. I'm going to abandon it. I'll move on to the next thing. And it's not that you needed to abandon it. You just either needed to give them more time to get used to it or you needed to simplify it a little bit to get them to build up to the the fully complex concept. Or actually the practice itself in its fullest form just wasn't feasible with their skill set but if you were to modify it slightly or to make some simpler adaptations like for example you know i've seen for example you see like videos of stuff of like some brilliant stuff with like um you know Bayern munich i think you know doing this brilliant like heading activity where they're trying to get a ball into a bucket and stuff right nines aren't going to do that right they don't know to head the ball they could do it with a balloon well they could do it with a beach ball and it'd be a fun game to do. And actually, it would learn a little bit about positioning and heading and stuff. It would have <clears throat> far less impact on on small brains. And I know there's a lot of issue about um, safeguarding around heading and all that sort of stuff. So use a modified ball and that, and still have the same game. But it wouldn't occur to a lot of people that, that's, that you could do the same practice with a modification by taking into consideration the ability of the athletes. So it's not just about the game problem you're looking for. It's also the ability of the athletes and the suitability of an activity and what modifications that you can make in order to enable them. By the way, the, um, the four domains, the space, task, equipment and uh, people yeah the step, yeah, the step yeah. principle is used really um widely within the world of inclusive sport working with people with various disabilities and impairments and it's designed deliberately for that to meet the needs of the individual based on what impairment they have because very rarely in the world of say disabled sport does everybody have you know even if you're working say with somebody with a, from a particular impairment group they don't have the same 
impairment exactly they have different needs so you could be working with you know for example visually impaired people some have partial sight some have complete some have 70 percent so actually you're going to design things that meet everybody's individual needs so this this is a inclusive way of operating but it applies within you know this this the context of the what you might call a in inverted commas able-bodied concept but just going back to your point about layering and i think this is a really important one um I think the idea of time-based planning is really flawed. And if I'm honest, it's one of the things I'd love to see changed in coach education because, you know, everyone's given their plan, right? And it says, I'm going to do this for this long and this for this long and this for this long. Well, that's just a guideline, right? We have to see that as completely just a guideline. In an ideal world, if everything worked according to plan, it would look like this. But let's face it, everybody knows that that will very, I don't know if I've ever run a session that worked like that. And to be honest, if it did, I think there'd be something wrong with it, right? Because these are human beings and they're complex animals, aren't they? And actually they do things that you don't expect. So very rarely does my plan work according to a time frame. But the same time is stuff, stuff takes time, way more time than we probably think. And often I think the... The idea of the time is we think we've got to put a lot into the session to get value from it. So I would say most coaches, in my view, put too much into a session, either because they want variety and they think the athletes want variety or because they think they've got to get a lot in because they've got limited time. And it is a fundamental myth that, that human beings can learn an awful lot in one go. They can't. Right. Especially when it comes to complex movement tasks. So actually, what we now need to do is we need to think about having the right amount of time and the right amount of complexity in order for people to move on. So very simple tasks you could do quite simply and move on. So if all you were doing was like isolated movement patterns, I wouldn't spend very much time on those at all. Why? It's boring for one. But two, um, yeah, someone can get an isolated movement pattern quite quickly. Right. So fair enough. If all you're going to do is loads of isolated movement patterns, yeah, you probably would move it on quite quickly. But the minute you add a bit of complexity, like another person into the dimension, well, all of a sudden the whole thing's changed fundamentally and you need them far more time on task, loads more goes at it for them to start to understand a little bit more about what's happening in that world. Because just the addition of one other human being has changed the dimensions considerably and there's far more for them to pay attention to. So um, I would definitely say that uh, in terms of planning and in terms of progress, one of the most important things for coaches to do is to be far more in tune with the progress of the athletes and to use their progress or their the, the sensations you're getting of their engagement levels as the guide as to when you might progress. And and mm. and, I, and And I do believe that attuning to athlete response is a really important part of coaching skill and just on that you know there's a couple of points that kind of just kind of spring up for me there the first one i want to you know touch on there you talked there about changing the context so going from maybe that unopposed isolated movement practice to then bringing in some sort of interference in some ways how important is it then that the athlete is then able to uh, i guess review um with some with an in-depth comprehension of what's actually happening there and how, how that's impacted on their decision-making and movement patterns within the action, if that makes sense. Um, 
Well, that's interesting. Okay, that's a that's a bit of a debate, and you know, you'd probably get two academics in the room from different perspectives of the sort of theoretical continuum, if you like, and they'd probably argue about this until the cows come home. And there is a bit of a debate about that. So, um, so you know, some theorists would say, and I don't think there's, by the way, I don't think there's anything out there necessarily that would concretely say one or the other. Um, so, some theorists would say that the athlete making explicit references as to what their experiences are and or being able to show or respond to a coach's questions with their comprehension of the activity is a really essential part of their learning. They would describe that as a sort of knowing about knowing or the language they use is metacognition, right? Yes. So some people believe that's really, really important. Others would say, that it's not as important as people think, because if you go back to your point about implicit learning, what you're getting is you're getting individuals attuning or perceiving an environment, acting in certain ways, and they are discovering without necessarily ex being able to explicitly reference it, they're discovering things about an environment that they're, that they're learning and learning to do that they probably couldn't articulate. And, and, and one of the reasons why this is important is, I don't know if you ever work with elite athletes and you ask them, how did you do that? They'll tell you, but it won't actually look like anything they've actually said um, because their perception of how they did it is often very different from how they did it. So actually often elite athletes are the worst people to teach you how to do stuff because they haven't really got a clue what they're doing. They're just doing it. And that's not quite true. But if you know, you, you, you take my point, yeah, don't you? Yeah. Which is a person's reflection of what they did often doesn't necessarily tally with our observations of what they did. So let me just, if I just finish that bit off, because I think it's important, right? Yeah. So, so you've got one thing, which is, so perception and action sometimes are really interesting. So how valuable that is, like the, the athlete's reflection of their, in get their experience is, uh, is up for debate, for debate. Now, my argument is, it's probably the only thing we've got, right? So for me to check understanding or to be able to get a sense of what someone's perceiving, the only really thing I've got is the verbal side. Don't get me wrong, I can observe it too. And I can check if it's happening by actually getting them to sort of repeat the action or to put them in the same environment to see if they repeat the action. So there are other checking mechanisms I can use to check understanding. And I do use covert tests as a means to do that. But it's not it's but the explicit reference stuff I do use because in the moment, it's a useful thing for me to just get a bit of a perspective of when you were when you were in that moment there, what was it that you saw that made you choose it to make that made you choose something? And they'll say, I saw this and you go, OK, that's really interesting. Now, I try not to make any judgments on that. I try not to say, oh, well, it would have been better if you did this or would have been. All I'm trying to do is to yeah. solicit information from them as to what it is they're perceiving. And that's a slightly different thing as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it kind of just resonates with me on, on that last bit, you know, rather than, I guess, dictating maybe what should have happened or what shouldn't have happened. It's right getting a deeper understanding of why the, that athlete made a particular decision or what they observed during those moments. Um and I, I do I do agree that, you know, obviously the comprehension isn't the be all and end all, but it is a very um it, it probably is maybe one of the one of the main things that we can kind of maybe obtain from them in that respect. Do you believe that, you know, whilst it's not necessarily I guess one way or the other, that having that comprehension could definitely help? Or being able to, I guess, uh certainly verbalise that in in a 
succinct way you know do you know what from the do you know what I, I don't know right i'm still i'm still trying to work that out i'll be totally honest with you um on, yeah. on the one hand i think on the one hand there's a part of me that thinks thinks it does because it, it seems to me that athletes well you want to be able to know don't you that athletes aren't just playing without any conceptualization of what's going on around them i mean a really skillful athlete we all know this and particularly in a invasion game like say football or hockey skillful athletes have really heightened awareness of what's around them whether it's the space around them that they can use or teammates or opponents and the more attuned they are to their opponents the more skillful they become so you do want them to be able to be to seeing that and not just operating in a bubble but how important it is for them to verbalize that, I don't know, because mm. I think some kids struggle to verbalize it. They can do it because they're great at the doing, but they're not brilliant at the telling and the articulation. So how important it is, I don't know. And I think it probably is an individualized thing. That mm. said, I think it's quite important for us to continue to probe because what that then does is it continues to emphasize to them the importance of them having heightened awareness of what's around them as a means by which for them to make make more informed decisions whether they're making those decisions reflexively because of what they're explicitly seeing or hearing or whether they're making those decisions because of what they're sensing and feeling is that is fine and I, I think what I'm looking for is to just get a sense of you know how aware of you of what's around you and yeah. what what is it that you're using that's around you that's helping you to decide what to do in any given moment in time and remember this is happening in millimicro nanoseconds that this is happening you know yeah. and um and i think that's that is really key um i don't so so what i would say is I, the jury's out for me as to how important it is that they can verbalize it but i think the process of them verbalizing it has some value if that makes any sense yeah, definitely. And I think something that, you know, again, resonates with, my, with myself and the work that I, I do with players is that I, I quite often, it'll be great to maybe understand and get them to verbalise for myself what they're maybe seeing and what they're observing and what and whatnot. But one of the things, I, you know, I, as you're talking there, that sparks a thought to me that I always say to my players is just pay attention to how you feel in the moment. Yeah. Pay attention to how you feel in that moment, whether that be, you know, it, as you said, it's about them being aware of the environment, and that could be something they're seeing, that could be something they're hearing. Can you hear? You know, what are you, what is it, what are the different variables or the things that you're taking into consideration when you're making that decision? Yeah. Is it because you felt that player closer on one occasion than another that you made this decision, or as opposed to that one? Whatever that may be, just pay closer attention to how you're feeling in that moment, what you're feeling, and if you can, uh, I guess connect the dots in some way where there's something that you're feeling as well as something that you're seeing and those two things uh, I guess marry themselves up for you then maybe use that as a an indicator of a particular action going forward if that makes sense yeah I think I think that's 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 exactly the way thing I mean for me I think it's one of the bits that is really missed and it's actually one of the reasons I um, have moved away from the sort of technique led approach um, yeah. because I actually think that awareness is kind of particularly in invasion games awareness is like essential isn't it i mean if you aren't aware of where space is 
um, you will get trapped all the time. I mean, for me, I think the most the most value, and I think this is where really skillful performers look like they've got loads of time because they're just acutely aware of where the space is. And by moving a tiny amount into a little bit of space, they buy themselves critical half seconds that then enable them to decide yes. what's next. And also awareness of the, uh, what's around them. It's it's such a critical thing. And that's one of the, one of the reasons like the really great players make it seem so effortless because they're so acutely aware of what's around them. I mean, there's a brilliant bit of, I don't know if you ever saw it. There was a brilliant thing done on Sky. I can't remember the name of the title, but basically they looked at the science side up behind like someone like Cristiano Ronaldo and they put, um, they put a, uh, some sort of device on his head, which looked where his eyes were when he was dribbling. And his eyes aren't, on, his eyes aren't on the ball. It, so again, I haven't seen that. It's worth look. It's worth looking up. I'll I'll try and remember it in a minute. But um, uh, it it's it, it's um, if you look on YouTube, for example, like Cristiano Cristiano Ronaldo visual dribbling or something, you probably find yeah. it right. And you, it shows where his eyes look right. And when he's dribbling, his eyes aren't on the ball. They, they obviously go to the ball every now and again, but they're mostly yeah. looking ahead at either the person in front of them and what they're doing, and they're responding responding or beyond what's behind and so that tells you that a skillful performer is taking their action cues from what the opposition is doing and it makes them almost impossible to defend as a result of that because you do this i do that you do this i do that you know it's like i've always got i'm always one move ahead of you um so just on that then you know something that again something that I've tried to do within the, within the stuff that I do with place, but it's more specifically when maybe I'm working in a smaller groups or one-to-one context as well, I will to an extent manufacture different situations uh, to challenge and probe on the perception and understanding for the players involved in that situation. So for instance, if I'm running at you and I put a well, if you're if you're running at someone rather, and I stick a player in front of you, dead, you know, dead in a straight line with you, what impact is that going to have on you? What are the things that you're going to be thinking about yeah. now? And almost yeah. expose you to as many of those similar sorts of situations. So that player might move from being dead in front of you to slightly on your right hand, right hand side of your body, or whatever that might look like, and then almost give you a reference point to work from, so that when you're now thrown into it in a live context, um, you have a few more. Uh, things to recall upon before going into that or as you're going through it, if that makes yeah. sense. And then obviously from that point onwards, it's still then, you know, giving the players the, or the athletes the, the ownership to make their own decisions and, uh, you know, challenge them around why they've maybe they made certain decisions different to maybe what they would have previously perceived and acted on to get that deeper understanding that, uh, that, in, that you know, the heightened level of awareness. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and and that's that's definitely you know the approach. I w- um, so to maybe speak to that a little bit more. Um, I would the, there's a term terminology that is used within the kind of ecological community, which is this idea of constraining to afford. Let me explain a bit about what that means. So an affordance is basically an invitation to act or an action possibility. Um, and whenever uh, there's whenever you're in some sort of environment, there's a range of action possibilities, um, you know, that are here. You know, if somebody picks up a cup, for example, your cup can be a receptacle which you 
drink liquid out of but at the same time it can become a hammer if you need it to be it can become uh something that you stand on to sort of li lift yourself up a little bit higher to reach something higher in the air it's got a range of different action possibilities and uses and the way you grab it and hold it and the way you pick it up and all that sort of stuff is very individualized um but in the environmental context um you know what you do as my opponent defines a little bit about what I do and, and likewise what I do defines a little bit about what you do and we're constantly sort of jousting a little bit to try and sort of get the upper hand on each other. Now what normally does a sort of traditional approach is what you would normally do is you would give the uh, person in possession of the ball the task so you'd to be able to do this and you're constrained in this way right which is fine and there's that works and there's lots of things but i would argue that there's another way of doing this which is you give the task to the defender so let's say you know you're trying to help an individual learn about manip ball manipulation and elimination with carrying the ball right so traditionally you're giving the task to the attacking player give the task to the defending player so you say to them you must win the ball in this way and you don't tell the attacking players what it is that the defending player has right. to do. Right. The attacking player has to adapt to what the defending player is trying to do. And the more attuned they are to what the defending player is trying to do, the more able they are to counteract their in, their action and then utilize that to their own advantage. That is genuine yes. skill. And so utilizing that approach, which a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think about, is a really good way to do exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think it just it's, it's something that I've actually done myself before, and what I, what I try and do to kind of maybe develop it further and keep, I guess, uh, an unpredictable outcome to an extent, is maybe challenge that that defender in that in that in that example to perform a certain way for a numerous amount of times, and then when I see that maybe the the attacker in that situation has kind of maybe picked up on mm -hmm. that. I maybe ask the defense to perform differently yep. to see whether they're still attuned to what's actually happening or whether they're just reacting because it's consistent, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, um, so, you know, Something else I want to kind of bring us back to, and you touched on it you know, a few moments back um, around the coach and when we're just talking about the session planning itself and the, the need for different types of practices and that time-based time, time -based planning. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of coaches out there, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've seen them, and I've seen where there's an, this idea of a variety for sessions or practices within a session or, or over a course of session. Do you identify that as a need or a want? Now, for me, I don't think there's, a, there's necessarily a need for massive amounts of variety. I mean, I, I, I have a, when I design my practice in particular, I, I go over the mindset of thinking, right, I want to be able to design practices or I look to design practices which can be dynamic and multifunctional in that if they're working on one aspect, there's also other aspects within it. So then I guess the athletes or the players within it can be, become familiar with the practice, but don't always have to be set with the same outcomes in the session, if that makes sense. So for instance, if I've got a finishing practice, that's an opposed practice. Well, some part of that is going to be an out of position element too. Yeah. So, yeah. I can easily use that same practice again, but just shift the focus to that. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, I think you, it's probably more common with uh, newer or lesser experienced coaches, this need for variety. Mm -hmm. um, I still see it with a lot of experienced coaches and I guess coaches have been coaching for a long time. 
but this need for variety and a constant, oh, we need to do something new for the players, we need to do something new for the players. How important do you think that is? Or do you think there is a, you know, oh, I think with everything, is striking the right balance. But um, certainly from my perspective, I think, you know, if you, can, if you can get yourself a set of practices which do their job and do what they say on the tin, essentially, then I think you're good to go. It's it's hard. I would say it's it's quite hard to answer that question because obviously there's a lot of variables at play, and I'm not going to just say um, it depends, which is what quite a lot of people in an, in the academic community seem to fall back on. I mean, it obviously does depend on a range of different factors. Um, what does it depend on, right? So, of course, um, what you're trying to achieve. Um, what you know, who you're working with, what their goals are, or what their wants and needs are. So, for example, if the session is purely about a group of young people, let's say in this case, coming together to have some fun, to move about a bit, um, and to get together socially with friends, and actually the physical activity, the the activity itself, the sport itself is almost inconsequential they're not too bothered about improvement they really just want a bit of a runabout then in that in that case i actually think the argument for variety might stand up you know you would be doing it from the perspective of you know you're giving them a little bit of this a little bit of that a little bit of this you know it's almost like a little bit of a mixed diet isn't it you know um and and that and that would work likewise i think you don't necessarily need loads of variety but it very much it's, it would be very much about what those individuals are looking for now in our realm, because we're talking about in the realm where groups of individuals are coming together with the explicit agreement with us that they actually want to develop and improve something about themselves, which is what I would consider to be more in the sort of talent development -y type of realm, then we're now we're working in a slightly different way. And therefore, we've got to then think about it differently. I genuinely do believe that variety, um, the, the, the argument for variety is... Uh, overused and uh, and I think it's done for the wrong reasons as well so I think first and foremost the reason for variety is because people are saying well I, I won't get engagement and then I'll start to behave badly and you know this that and the other well yes and no I actually think if you're skillful about it there's lots of ways of bringing in variety without actually changing the practice that much um, mm. so I very rare I actually more often than not would be basically using one practice design but within that practice design, we'll make modifications to that practice, either through rules or space or equipment or tasks or, or people, which will feel like it's got quite a lot of variety to the athletes, but it's intentional in order to bring about different adaptations. So it feels like there's variety whilst actually the practice itself is the same. Um, but it's because we're exploring or tuning into different things within the realm of that practice. So. What I see a lot of is, uh, well, I mean, this is the worst aspect of variety for me, which I see a lot of. We go, we're going to have our beginning, middle and end. We're going to have our starter, our main course and our pudding, if you like. Right. And usually the pudding is the game. Right. And I see absolutely no connection between the practice forms utilized within the session. So the starter will be we're going to do a bit of technical stuff, usually a bit of unopposed, maybe or whatever. Or it might be we're going to do some technical stuff. Then we're going to move into a into a game into sorry into something that's sort of more the the main part of the practice. And then we're going to move into something else, right? And they're not even necessarily related. And the game at the end has absolutely no relevance to what we did at the start or the middle. It's almost like, you know, you've had. 
you know, uh, 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 you've had like like different types of foods all together, right? In your kind of starter yeah. starter main course and 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 um, pudding. So my view is, is you want to try and keep the connection. They want to try and like sort of link together. And like a good chef, if they were putting a menu together, the starter would be like a way of you know, you, it would it would have a a link to the main course. It would complement the main course. That would then complement yeah. whatever you have as a as a as a pudding. So, for example, um, I, and I want to maintain a theme. So, if I'm going to do say a technical aspect at a start of a session, I don't. By the way, I don't work like this. But let's say I was. Um, if I was going to do a, a technical aspect at the start of the session, I would then want to then do some more of that technical element within the main bit that had other dimensions within it maybe more tactical dimensions and then when we got to the game bit if we worked in this way then i'd definitely want to be in reinforcing that in the game as well so that we saw the application I don't, like i said i don't work in that way but if i was to work in that way you want to create commonality now that's still got variety but what it's got is something common that that links it all together that creates flow that actually means that you're enriching the learning experience so i know this is a very long-winded way of answering your question and it's because it's a complex topic but broadly speaking variety for variety's sake definitely not variety within a theme absolutely even better than that maintenance of practice form for simplicity but some amendments within that absolutely even better definitely and i think you know that that variety for variety's sake you know i totally i totally dis disagree with that aspect and you know, that with that perception of things and that if that's the way people want to go with i think it's always be intentional and deliberate about what you're doing and why you're doing it so why am i picking these practices who are they for and what am i hoping to gain out of them or if anything go in reverse order what am i hoping to gain out of the practices i'm about to put on why am i and who, who are they for and then why am I using this practice, if that makes sense? Um, you know, obviously, just going to kind of take things to you know, it's a slightly different direction now. You know, this, you know, thinking about your podcast now, you know, or your blog and whatnot, the talent equation, that word talent, I want to kind of look into, look into that a little bit deeper than, you know, what is talent exactly? And, you know, is it, how, how different is that to, you know, ability? You know, you touched, uh, you, you've spoken about it before in, you know other 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 forms and there was this phrase that you know sir clive would would use you know that talent is not enough um and that's something that you know that, that you've mentioned before you know would you mind just going a little bit more detailed yeah the, the thesis of the talent equation it's you know backed up by quite a lot of research actually um is that um people equate talent with ability as in so if somebody's like really able like they're physically gifted or they're um you know technically capable or they have you know whatever all the stuff that you see someone do in a given domain then they're deemed to be talented an ability is only one part of talent it is a part of it but it's one part of talent right so to say that someone's talented because they're able is uh, is a is a, a, mis a misrepresentation of what talent really is in my conception and supported, like I said, by a lot of the stuff that I've read and researched. Um, people recognize that genuinely talented individuals, not only do they have ability, but they also have 
a mindset let's call it that or they have a uh they have a series of character um aspects to their personality that you know help them with their ability and so and they're the bits that we don't tend to look at as much so and i think this is a bit of a mistake so when sir clive woodward said talent is not enough what he was trying to say to his his team were was it's not enough just to be good physically and technically and tactically you've got to have the other bits as well and he talked a lot about things like teamship and his idea was you know it's about being there for your teammates and it's a co it's a set of behaviors that are important to enable the cohesion of a group to be more than the sum of its parts and you know, and they talked a lot within that concept of like, you know, for example, if you were five minutes late for a, if you were five minutes early for a meeting, you were late. These are the little ideas. He called them the critical non-essentials, I think. Um, and, uh, and and actually, that's part of it as well. You know, this is this idea of you inhabit a set of behaviors that define you as an individual. But that's actually a very important part of being a talented individual. So, um you know, and and th and by the way, those that mindset, if you like, and those factors are um, huge drivers of the other aspects as well. Um, and also, what we know is that they're actually they are not just traits; they're not just fixed traits that an individual has by virtue of birth. Some aspects are, but there are some aspects that are quite developable, and a lot of it's quite develop developable based on the environment that you're in whether it's your parental and your, your own your home and schooling environment or your you know the environment you have it within a, as a coach and the values that are espoused and the things that you strive for and all those sorts of things so knowing what we know about that you know so understanding that an individual you know is hugely driven determined committed dedicated passionate you know they have a almost like a, a an obsession in some cases you know they have an absolute a desire for what it is they're trying to achieve right but they're also you know they can also be like critical and um you know sometimes a little bit um self de self-deprecating or they can also be self-destructive because of their you know drive for perfection um they can also but also you know they have some people also have you know um uh, a need for social connection and um, creativity and all these sorts of dimensions. There's lots of them. And I don't think there's a single um, iteration that says that's a talented athlete, that isn't. And that's why I always think that attempts by organizations to go, this is a talented athlete and you need to look for these traits in order to get, you know, they're just completely flawed, particularly with development, developing athletes. It's far less clear than that. But there are some kind of core principles that you can use and adapt. And things like that so anyway the point i'm trying to make is that um you've got to look at that hidden side the stuff that's not as visible like the mindset those drivers of talent and you've got to put them together now the big thing about talent is in this misconceptualization is we um we we um what we tend to do is we will nearly always make decisions about an individual's potential based on their capabilities in front of us right here, right now. So the assumption is if you've got two kids in front of you and one of them is better than the other, the assumption is that will always be the case. So this individual is better and has more potential because they're better now than this individual here. 
Now, what we now, if I was going to have to make a bet on that, for la, I mean, as flawed as that would be, if I was going to have to make a bet on that. The bet I would make is right. Let me look at this individual's psychological, emotional, social makeup as well. And if I looked at those two things, right, and I had to make a bet, right, I would go with the one that I felt had more of the attributes um, that are potentially going to be the drivers of future success than the one who had the pure ability now but didn't have those drivers. Because it's much harder to take somebody who is, let's say, not too bothered but just physically gifted and help them to become really determined and really driven. But if you have somebody who is already kind of got this idea of I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can to maximize my capabilities, it's actually far easier to help them to progress. Um, uh, obviously, depending on the physical limitations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but broadly speaking, if I had to make a bet, as which I would not want to, but if I had to, it would be the one with the drivers that I would go for. What you're actually looking for is athletes with both, con you know, sort of both things. You're looking for the really greatly you know, the people with the abilities, not gifts. They're not gifts, but the abilities um, and, the, and the mindset to go with it. But they rarely do they exist. They're like the golden eggs, they're very rarely there. More often than not, there's a bit of balancing act to be done. And, and so anyway, the reason I have that thesis, by the way, is to get practitioners such as yourself and myself, everybody else, to understand that more and to actually commit to learning more about the, the development of those con those aspects. Because we're all taught, aren't we, how to do the X's and O's and the techniques and everything else, but rarely are we given any information about how you help an athlete develop grit and determination and all those other all those other very important drivers of performance. And I think if we were to develop those aspects as well, it would make us far better at helping people to achieve their goals. Definitely, and I think you know something you mentioned there. You, it's almost you can't really. It's, it's, it's not that you can't really. It's it's difficult to shift someone's mindset. It's difficult to change someone's mental, uh, approach to things. However, if they've already got a, a foundation to work from in terms of their dedication, their hard work, and their determination to achieve something, then it, it becomes a lot easier because, in some ways, all they now need is a bit of direction. Yeah. Um. And you're right there. You know, when you look at the coach education courses, generally, certainly the ones I've come across, uh, both in football and out. Um, there is, you know, limited to no information around how to actually support these players uh, in developing a stronger mindset or developing, as you put it there, the grit and determination aspect of things. Just, just on that, then, you know, how 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 important is it that, or rather, yeah, how important is it, and what could coaches be doing to maybe upskill themselves on those aspects of things? Um, well, I think there's a lot of information out there now, um, much, much more than there was certainly when I was starting my coaching journey. Um, and it's far more readily available. I mean, you know, back in the day, getting access to academic journals was pretty difficult. You know, you had to be basically doing a master's or a PhD or something along those lines to be able to access the libraries. Whereas now you've got, you know, Google Scholar, ResearchGate, Academia.edu, uh, um, Academia.com, whatever, uh, which I'm, you know, I'm a subscriber to which means that you can access a lot more research journals if you really want to get into the weeds with it but if you aren't particularly au fait with reading research journals which most of us aren't let's face it um 
then there's quite a lot of books out there with some really good, you know, which basically synthesize a lot of the research and help people out. I mean, one of the like seminal books for me that was like, you know, in the early days was The Talent Code. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great discussion of some of these areas. I mean, there's elements in it that I guess, you know, you could question and science has moved on, but the central principles in there are really strong about, you know, talent and environments and the importance of environments and the importance of coaching and all those sorts of things. So it's a really important, important, but there's a lot of books out there like that, that talk about, you know, talent, um, to, you know, and, and synthesize quite a lot of research. And that's one of the things that some great authors do. I mean, um, the other thing I would say as well, um, if you really want to get into this, this area, so, so, there's, so there's the academic stuff that's freely available. There's quite a lot of stuff on Twitter. There's there's a lot of people in the podcasting realm talking about some of these ideas. And there's some absolutely fantastic podcasts out there that 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 talk about things like, you know, just more the psychological side, if you like, or the idea of environments and understanding more. Um, uh, you know, and it's definitely worth worth looking into that. I mean, I definitely talk about some of these some of these aspects within within my show um, because it's important. I've had a number of people on there who are you know what you might call sort of performance coaches. My own mentor, for example, I've got a number of different mentors who've been on the show um, who've been there. You know, people like Mark Bennett and Jamie Edwards and um, you know Dan Abrams and um, you know and we've got a full range there. So it's definitely worth exploring all that as well. No, funny enough, we, we just had released an episode of Mark Bennett last week, um, and Dan Abrams a couple of weeks before there that. There you go. Um, so that you know, definitely, you know, the, it, you know, a large part of what I'm trying to do here is essentially build that community of coaches and you know have that similar to what you're doing. We just share that information out there. You know, there's so much information that is out there um, for us coaches and practitioners alike to kind of. You know, delve into and use as a source of like, either inspiration or upskilling and developing ourselves as well. Um, I'm obviously mindful of your time, Stuart, and I just want to say thank you again for your time this morning. Just we start to wind down, and I was wondering if there's anywhere in particular that if the listeners did have any questions beyond what we've discussed today or wanted to get in touch with you and even, you know, tune into your own podcast if you wanted to maybe share some details regarding that. Um, yeah, so uh, podcast is available on you know all good podcast listeners we're on pretty much every, most platforms i would say um and it just search the talent equation um the the website is the talent um and i've got a contact form on there that you can you can uh, by all means get in touch my twitter handle is stew underscore arm um if you want to get me on twitter um people do often quite quite often reach out to me um and, and pose questions. I'll be honest with you, I'm not always able to answer all of them. Um, but what I try and do it where I can is to answer them in some of my, you may have heard I do something called a dog walk diary where I'm out with my dog flow and I'll answer a question there. So by all means, keep firing them in. And if I see one, I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer it in the dog walk diaries. Um, yeah, but and yeah. And uh, listen, you know, I'm, I live to try and engage people so more than happy to speak to anybody if i possibly can i also run a, a community of learning as well which is a, a group called the conclave where i've got coaches from all over the world who come together on a monthly basis and we explore different challenges that we're all facing together and kind of use if you like the wisdom of the crowd i suppose to support each other so i facilitate that as well so if people are kind of keen to sort of get not only the mentoring of me but the mentoring of a group of you know everyone who's just committed learners then um they can all you know by all means come come along and, and join in that 
Well, there you have it, guys. You've been listening to another edition of the Coaches Network How To Series, where we discuss a range of topics and with the help of our guests, break down some actionable how-to steps for you to reach your full potential. Now, I've got no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again, guys. You know, your support is massively appreciated. So thanks again for everyone that's been tuning in and please do get in touch with us and today's guest to let us know where you're listening from, to share your thoughts, your views and your key takeaways from today's show. Along with any suggestions for guests you'd like to see on the show and any topics you'd like to hear discussed, ultimately, guys, the show is about you guys. So let us know what you're interested in, who you're interested in listening from, so get us and get in touch. And on that note, guys, you can get in touch on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. But please do not forget to use the hashtag The Coaches Network. That was the hashtag The Coaches Network. We need as much support we can get to keep this great content coming out to you. Now lastly guys, I just want to say keep an eye out for our socials on the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with our panel. Until next time guys, take care and have a great day. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.